We tend to think of security as a process of figuring out how we respond if everything goes wrong, but there's another framing there. I think we really could be considering what the benefits of this system are if everything goes right. Hello everyone, this is the Optimistic Outlook and I'm Barbara Humpton, CEO of Siemens USA. You know, as we've thought about infrastructure and our future, one of the things that's clear is that our future is interconnected. The same technology that was used uh, to really change our entertainment and communication lives also applies to the large-scale infrastructure we deal with day in and day out. And that's why in this episode, I wanted to ask an expert about cybersecurity and what we should be thinking about. Is there an optimistic view for the future of cybersecurity? Well, happily, we found an expert, Laura Bate. She's the Director of Cyber Engagement of the congressionally established U.S. Cyberspace Solarium Commission. It was tasked with developing a strategic approach to defending the United States against significant cyber attacks. Prior to joining the commission, Laura was a policy analyst with the Cybersecurity Initiative at New America. In this episode, we'll talk about the Commission's recommendations, we'll talk a little bit about workforce, but I think you'll really be, really be interested in hearing what she has to say about the optimistic view she has of our cyber future. Laura Bate, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to join you. So there's an interesting line toward the beginning of the Commission's report, which notes that the author who invented the term cyberspace later described it as just a buzzword. Uh, when we say cyberspace and cybersecurity, what do we really mean? That's a great question. And far be it for me to try and give you an authoritative definition on that. Uh, over the course of the commission's work, we conducted something like upwards of 400 interviews. And every one of those subject matter experts will have had a slightly different perspective on what exactly cyberspace, cybersecurity, cyber, all of these things mean and mean in relation to one another. Um, but generally speaking, we're talking about securing the confidentiality, the integrity, and the availability of data as it rests on and moves through networks and devices. That can mean a lot of things, but looking at the wider consequences of that, we're also talking about systems that are now integral to our life and protecting those systems, whether they're critical infrastructure or the Zoom connection that we're using to talk now. That's right. And it's amazing because things that we just did, never knew were connected, we're learning they actually are. And so there's an incredible amount of data moving through systems. And so cyberspace refers to all of that known and undetected so far. Exactly. Well, so tell us about how the U.S. cyberspace solarium came into being. So the commission was established by the 2018 National Defense Authorization Act, the legislation that establishes the Pentagon and the Pentagon's budget for the new year. Um, the name and the structure of it, though, is a throwback towards the Project Solarium during the Eisenhower administration. In attempting to come up with a strategy to sort out the Cold War, President Eisenhower set forward three different teams, each looking at a different approach to dealing with the challenges they were confronting at the time. Uh, all three teams met at an event in the solarium of the White House and debated it out. And the strategy eventually became what Eisenhower used to move forward in the Cold War. It was not quite any one of those particular teams, but sort of an amalgamation of them. And our structure is very similar to that. We were originally divined, divided into three teams, one looking at uh, deterrence, although resilience really became a big part of that. 
One looked at persistent engagement and defend forward, the strategy the Pentagon is using. Um, and one looked at norms and international engagement. So we took these three teams, moved forward. We had an event back in October, uh, debated it out, and then came up with a series of recommendations off of the back of that. How I'm sort of curious about how difficult it was to come to consensus, even in relatively focused working teams. Tell me about that process. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so the, the report is consensus-based, and that's a particular challenge for, for our commission because not only do we have four sitting legislators uh, from both sides of the aisle and from both bodies of Congress, we also have four administration officials. Uh, in addition to that, we then have six additional civilians, if you will, appointed from different areas of think tank, academia, and business. And so all of our commissioners were really approaching this process from a very, very different perspective. Um, and that being said, they don't even describe themselves as being bipartisan. They describe themselves as being nonpartisan. And that really is reflected in the work. Um, you know, there, there were some sort of uh, institutional perspectives and ways that people's uh, interests reflected where they were coming from, as you'd expect. Um, everybody came with different experiences and heaven's knows they didn't always agree. We had better than 30 meetings of the commission, I believe, uh, over the course of the year. Um, and so it was a challenge to build consensus among that group. But ultimately, I think the need that we are confronting, and particularly as we saw it play out over the course of the year with a variety of attacks and a variety of challenges that have emerged out of the pandemic, with all of the different questions and challenges we've seen come up over the course of the year, I think that the urgency of coming to a consensus really, really was clear that there was a bigger challenge ahead of us. You know, that's really heartening, actually, to hear, because there are so many things in our lives right now that are, it's just really hard to come to consensus or even see things, uh, that, you know, similarly. And so it's great to know that you've got that kind of alignment um, that's been forged within the cyberspace solarium. Uh, Laura, at, at Siemens, we've been thinking a lot about how we bring infrastructure online and that systems themselves need to be secure. But organizations also need to be capable of monitoring and responding. You know, hacks are inevitable, right? That's, it is part of the life. This is spy, counter spy. This is, you know, the cat and mouse game that goes on. What is the commission putting forward as the most effective strategy for security and resilience? I would actually, if I can, start by challenging the premise. I mean, in the spirit of taking an optimistic outlook, I'm not sure that it's I'm not sure that we absolutely have to accept that hacks are inevitable. I think that successful hacks may not be inevitable. Mm -hmm. Attempts may be. Um, but I think that there's certainly a lot we can do about that. Um, the commission on reflecting on our history in cyberspace recognized that deterrence really hasn't been working, um, but that it can work, that there are ways to get the different instruments of government and the way we collaborate with the private sector and our international partners aligned so that they can operate in concert to provide a layered deterrent strategy that really can decrease the frequency of hacks and decrease the severity of them by shaping behavior in cyberspace, by using the State Department and our international partners and allies working with these groups to, to really push forward different norms of cyberspace, behavior in cyberspace, by making our own infrastructure more resilient, and by really enforcing consequences for bad behavior from aligned actions in cyberspace, we can really deter quite a lot of bad behavior. Um, 
as a more general observation, I think that we tend to think of security as a process of figuring out how we respond if everything goes wrong. But there's another framing there. I think we really could be considering what the benefits of this system are if everything goes right. I think successful deterrence means that this current environment really isn't inevitable. Well, let's play with that a little bit more because I love the idea of turning a fear on its head. Um, what does it look like if things go right? You've described um, the idea of protections being in place. You've described the idea of some consequences for, um, for bad behavior in cyberspace. Um, do we need um, commissions that have authority to, to act and, and to enforce? Uh, how do you think that plays out in, the, in, in that positive view? Yeah, absolutely. I- I think looking at the sort of how do we get there, one of the first things that we really need is alignment across the U.S. government to allow for better coordination. The commission recommended the position of the national cyber director, which, if functioning properly, means that the various bits and pieces of government are informed on what all of the others are doing. Not to say that we're not doing that now, but there's always room for improvement. Um, When we talk about things like attribution in cyberspace, when we talk about working with partners and allies or balancing those trusted relationships internationally with actions internationally, we need to be able to talk quickly. We need to be able to have muscle memory for knowing how we behave in cyberspace, how the different branches of government move forward. So having some coordinated center point within government to really facilitate that becomes critical. Um, And if it works properly, then we're able to both defend ourselves and create trusted relationships and move forward in a way that I think really has a meaningful impact. I'm an economist, so when I look at the big picture positive background of that, I see um, that we decrease the friction of business. We talk about the economic loss to to cybercrime. We talk about the loss to intellectual property theft. All of these things we've just kind of accepted as the cost of doing business, but we don't have to. If we could take all those expenses and reinvest them in business, think about what we could do with that. Think about the research and development potential. Think about the reinvestment of all of that. Um, But on a much more human level, I think that we're all coming to realize, as we started out by discussing, that we're putting a lot more of our lives online. And that means that we're constantly evaluating the risk inherent to that. But imagine if we didn't have to make that calculation. For me, that's fairly negligible. But for vulnerable populations, for people who are not digital natives, for people who are victims of domestic abuse, for people who are journalists, activists, making those calculations have real human consequences. And so better cybersecurity, to me, means that you're able to move forward without that sort of specter of threat sitting over you constantly, that you can really engage and connect. The upside is huge. Yeah, I, and I love that perspective. And you've brought up the, the people aspect of this. And so let me ask you more about the workforce. Mm-hmm. And when you think today about how we're going to prepare the workforce uh, that's needed to bring about this positive future, um, where are we going to find the right kind of skills? And how do, we, how do we train people up if they don't have them? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think we do tend to look at it as where do we find the skills? But I think the truth is, in a lot of ways, the talent is there. And it's incumbent on us as policymakers, as business leaders, to figure out how we turn that talent into skills and experience. Right now, we're pulling a lot of recruitment from four-year university programs, from people with computer science or engineering degrees. And that's great. And that needs to continue to be part of the pipeline that brings in talent. Uh, 
But if you look at the numbers of people coming out of those programs and you compare it to the better than half a million unfilled cybersecurity jobs nationwide in the U.S. alone, um, we're never going to get there if that is our only source of talent. So we need to be thinking about how we can create alternative pathways into the cybersecurity industry. Survey data fairly consistently says that employers feel that the people who are coming in need something to help bridge the gap, that that university education alone isn't enough to get them up and moving on the job. And so whether someone is coming in from a university program or they're coming in from an entirely different profession or an entirely different self-taught or uh, career change or whatever their academic background is, we need to figure out how we get them into that first year or two years or three years of experience on the job. So a lot of this is going to be about getting into the profession and then learning through experience, learning from experts side by side, swimming in the the sea. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And that's not to say that we throw people in the deep end uh, and see if they sink or swim, but rather we figure out what tools we have available, how we incentivize mentorship structures, how we incentivize non-conventional recruiting programs, how we incentivize things like apprenticeship programs and work-based learning programs to really enable people to connect with that experience. Well, I think this is going to be encouraging to a lot of listeners because I can't tell you how many people I've talked to over these last couple of years who've said, you know, I've pursued one path in my career and I'm not sure whether this is the right thing for me. I'm very interested in switching over into cybersecurity, but I don't know how to get started. And I'm definitely going to be adopting this message that it's less about the the academic credentials. It's not about going back to school per se, but getting in, getting experience. So we need some on-ramps. And, uh, and perhaps we at Siemens could help build some of those on-ramps to help develop that workforce for the future. Absolutely. And there are a lot of good opportunities for businesses to plug in there. There are a number of different nonprofit organizations, think tanks who are working to build structures and principles and and ways to think about this and how to most effectively use the relatively rare research and development dollars, the, the opportunities that we have to develop training. So there are good opportunities. Fantastic. Hey, so something I'd like to ask you about is because we're in the middle of a pandemic, you and I are having this conversation in in the con-COVID days, as I like to call them. Um, One of the things that I realized is that the commission's report came out in March. That was right when the, obviously, we were beginning the, the wave of the pandemic. And, you know, just as we were starting to react as a nation and put uh, defenses in place. And of course, we use the same language in cybersecurity that we do in health. I'm kind of curious about what you see as the parallels between the way we treat a healthcare crisis and the way we work in cyber. Yeah, I'm glad you asked because as a matter of fact, we have a white paper out on that very topic. Um, That confluence of events definitely struck us too. Um, And so I I want to talk about the ways there are parallels, but first I want to start out by sort of qualifying that with the ways there aren't parallels. Um, I think that cybersecurity and the current pandemic environment are significantly different for two reasons. One, the scale of the human tragedy that we are seeing in the pandemic is unlike anything that we've seen as a result of a cyber attack. That doesn't mean that that could change. I sure hope it doesn't, but it's worth keeping in mind that that is very different. It's also worth keeping in mind that, by and large, a pandemic is 
there, there's no mind behind it. There's no strategy or signal behind it. It is a mindless thing, just doing its doing its thing. Um, a cybersecurity attack certainly can get there, but it usually doesn't start out at that point. So you look, for example, at the NotPetya attack that we recently saw. This was an attack that was intentional and targeted and then got out of control. And so that means the dynamics of addressing it, changing it, changing actors' decision calculus with whether or not they launch something like that is very different than it is during a pandemic. Having said that, we looked at two different parallels. One is what we learned from the pandemic itself. So as we move to a, an entirely Zoom-based existence, as we move everything online, what vulnerabilities does that open up that we didn't address in our original report? We also looked at what we're learning from this pandemic. So in terms of how do we establish continuity of the economy when a major crisis happens? How do we ensure trusted supply chains continue in force? Um, how do we ensure that the norms that protect healthcare infrastructure continue to hold? And we saw a lot of parallels there. A lot of the parallels that we saw come back to leadership issues. There needs to be trusted leadership to ensure coordination at a high level across the U.S. government. Internationally, we also need to make sure the State Department is in a position to take a leadership role in coordinating the, the global aspect of some of this, as we've seen is, is critically important that we're able to work with our partners and our allies and develop some of those trusted supply chains and figure out how we support each other. So lots of parallels there. Yeah, and actually I'll share one more, which is that we've learned a lot in this pandemic that individual action matters. And boy, we certainly know that from dealing with cyber threats uh, in our in our own business and, and how critical each individual is to protecting the cybersecurity of the whole organization. Um, Laura, I'm, I'm curious whether you've heard about the Charter of Trust. Um, Siemens was uh, originally the founder and helped to gather the industry partners and industry and academia partners who would join with us. I, what you've just mentioned, this idea that um, it really does take alliances and takes leadership in order to uh, assure cybersecurity. Um, I, I'd be interested in your feedback or reflections on that charter of trust and the role of industry as, uh, as governments uh, uh, move forward in this space. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, my original sort of home on the commission was with our third task force, the one looking at international norms. And the private sector plays a huge role in shaping some of those. Um, I think that role depends on the particular issue. So, for example, talking about the development of norms of behavior in cyberspace, there are some decisions there that really need to be, you know, focused on determining what governments should and shouldn't do. That needs to be left to those we have chosen as citizens chosen to govern. So some of those things really are, by their nature, the purview of government. However, more generally, we can't operate, we can't impact this space if we're not collaborating with the private sector. The private sector is an enormous stakeholder and they're a fantastic resource. Uh, the private sector knows how these structures work because they're the ones that built it and they're the ones that own it. And so figuring out how we help secure this infrastructure is completely impossible without working with the private sector. Um, everything from standard setting to figuring out incident response plans, to information sharing. All of these things necessitate close collaboration with our private sector partners. So there's a very big role to be played there. Well, I'm proud of the work that we're, we're doing in this area, proud to be supporting the governments uh, where we do business. 
And, um, you know, and this has been an incredibly interesting and inspiring conversation. I, I really am thankful for what you've done, Laura, in this space. And I, I'd like to close with just coming back to your vision of uh, our world with a strong cybersecurity, with this positive outlook that you have. Give us a glimpse of what the future looks like. I think that that's a world where we don't have to sit and second guess what we click on. I mean, cybersecurity and awareness, individual action, as you pointed out, will always be important. But being able to know that we can trust, that we can truly trust the structures that we're entrusting our, our daily lives to, um, that opens up an incredible opportunity for collaboration globally. It opens up an incredible opportunity for trade of digital goods and services. There's so much that we can do in terms of innovation and connecting with other parts of the world, learning about other parts of the world. Um, but in order to do that, we need to be able to trust our infrastructure. So the vision is optimistic. And the future is optimistic. I want to live in that future with you. Thank you so much, Laura Bate. What a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It's my pleasure. I hope you'll connect and share comments with me on LinkedIn and Twitter and use the hashtag Optimistic Outlook. I hope you'll take the time to learn more by visiting Siemens.com optimist. Thanks for listening. And I look forward to hearing from you.